Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Minute Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is back home in England after being away for a whole year. Today, we speak to Justin T. Russell, who has over 30 years of experience in government service, government relations and international affairs from the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs. And we are joined by um, my friend on stage, Erica Andrade, and we will be having some other friends of the podcast who will join us later. Um, just whilst we're doing the intro, um, we do record these now on Clubhouse. So that means that you, dear listener, you can actually be a part of the live recording of this show. Quite simply, all you need to do is uh, download the Clubhouse app, which is available on for iPhone and also for Android, uh, and then follow uh, Mid-Atlantic. And then basically, you can be in the audience when I do these shows live, and it means you can ask a question. So that's what you need to do, dear listener. So in a week that has seen the US sign a new military agreement with Australia and the US, we ask where next will we see the retrenchment of US power and what world will it lead to? Britain, the US and Australia have launched a new defence and security partnership with plans to develop a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines for the Australian Navy. Boris Johnson says the project will be crucial in the protection of the Allies' shared interests in the Indo-Pacific region. But China quickly condemned what it called a Cold War mentality. We start our coverage with our defence correspondent, Jonathan Beale. Britain's decision to send its aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth and other warships to the Pacific is proof of the growing strategic importance of the region. The UK, US and Australia are all increasingly concerned about a more assertive China. Hence the decision to step up their military cooperation and important enough for the leaders of all three countries to announce this new defence partnership, AUKUS for short. Today we're taking another historic step 
to deepen and formalize cooperation among all three of our nations. And because we all recognize the imperative of ensuring peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific over the long term. We need to be able to address both the current strategic environment in the region and how it may evolve. Because the future of each of our nations, and indeed the world, depends on a free and open Indo-Pacific enduring and flourishing in the decades ahead. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you today, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Greetings from Washington, D.C., Roy Felt. Thanks for having me. Uh, no worries. You're doing fantastic, but I'm not so sure about the U.S. foreign policy. Um, it <laughs> seems to me, seems to me uh, that uh, 2021 is going to be seen historically as one of those kind of pivotal years where American foreign policy changed. Uh, is this hyperbole or hyperbole, depending on how you pronounce that word, hyperbole from me, or do I have good reason for thinking this is going to be a pivotal year for U.S. foreign relations. I agree with the thinking that this is going to be a pivotal year. I think one of the things that we have to realize is after coming off of the four years of Trump, which did not do us a lot of foreign policy favors here in the United States, if you will, there was zero chance that this was going to be a consequential year to two years regarding foreign policy and how the Biden administration and the leadership of the State Department under Secretary Tony Blinken were going to have to change the narrative, change the dynamic, if you will, of how not only foreign po- our foreign policy and our foreign policy strategy is viewed inside the general electorate here in the United States, but also the ramifications of having to patch up some of the hiccups that happened in the previous administration and having some of these relationships continue forward with the challenges that we're seeing right now. I think really this um, American policy was fundamentally really started with Obama in 2009. He basically ran on a platform that America, yes, was going to engage with the world, but it's going to lead from behind. And that fundamentally really masked a desire to pull out uh, American troops and American commitments from certain theatres around the world. And most definitely, um, Obama wanted to wind down America in America's involvement in Afghanistan, uh, but couldn't for a whole load of kind of strategic reasons. He was told that the way to get out was basically to surge, put boots on the ground. Would I be wrong in saying that this new American reality really started with the presidency of Barack Obama? Oh, gosh, that's a great question, actually. I actually take it back to, uh, as, as a student of history myself, I, I see a lot of the lead up to this in some of the history that we've seen in our foreign policy. I give you the Russian invasion of Afghanistan back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, what we would commonly refer to today is, you know, what would become Charlie Wilson's war, the covert funding of of Afghan rebels trying to eject Russian forces, that set the tone for what would become obviously uh, the Taliban and what would ultimately bring us what we now know to be Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Uh, if you read the book, Charlie Wilson's War, if you see the movie, uh, there's a quote at the end of the movie that's put up on screen where it basically says, you know, we did the right thing, but the quote is, but we effed up the end game. 
we are not this is not the first time that we have not only effed up the end game in Afghanistan, which should have been a lesson to us, uh, but we did it so publicly. So kind of a long way around to your to to answer your question, Roy Felt. The reality is I go back to that time as kind of setting a precedence of how we use a combination of foreign aid, uh, the intelligence community, covert operations, and military force combined with uh, the the ideal that was brought by James Baker, who I think is still one of the greatest, if not the greatest secretaries of state we've had in this country. He was a big fan of soft power. When we started getting away from that concept of soft power that we saw in the Reagan administration, particularly in the uh, first Bush administration, and then leading up until uh, 2001, and then su- subsequently the uh, the Afghan involvement as well as the invasion of Iraq, we got away from what we saw as the kind of a, a, a very strong approach with soft power. And that I think kind of set the mark of the transition into what we see today. The problem is the Obama administration, I think, kind of set it off the rails a little bit. And it's not just the Obama administration, every, every administration since Obama administration made the what we would consider strategic decisions, even some tactical decisions, very public. What they thought was transparency was actually telegraphing. And I think that's never good when you're dealing with the delicate situations like we were in Iraq at the time, Afghanistan even today, and then even going back to the old days of the support that we gave during the Russian invasion of Afghanistan back in the 70s. I have to slightly take you back. Um, you said that James Baker was a better foreign secretary, uh, secretary of state, sorry, I was doing the, the British label, yeah, secretary yeah, yeah. of state yeah. than yeah. Uh, the best, sorry, in the post-war era. Harry, Henry Kissinger would beg to differ, wouldn't he? Well, Henry Kissinger begs to differ because the obvious answer for Dr. Kissinger is Dr. Kissinger. Notwithstanding the fact that Dr. Kissinger was incredibly good. I mean, you know, we, we can put this in the sports parlance is, is who your top five. Henry Kissinger definitely ranks among the top five. Where I see Secretary Baker and the strength that he had, and the concept, there's, there's a book uh, that was uh, written recently about James Baker. And in the book, he talks about the strength of having soft power and even using the Teddy Roosevelt mantra of speak softly and carry a big stick. James Baker knew that the way for us to truly be effective in an expanding global community was to speak softly, use a good combination of foreign aid, uh, sensible diplomacy when needed, and then having that military presence globally as kind of a, a signal that we're still here. That gave us, in my opinion, 
the lead up to the fall of the Soviet Union. It, that gave us the, you know, the opening up of Europe and the dismantling of the Soviet bloc. But, but Justin, which, wasn't, isn't the big difference between the 80s and possibly even the 90s and under Bill Clinton, America had a very muscular foreign policy uh, agenda. You know, Belgrade was bombed. They stopped the Bosnian War, uh, the creation of the state of Kosovo. Um, America put boots on the ground in Somalia. But the big difference is between, uh, let's say, that kind of nation building phase of American foreign policy under Bill Clinton uh, or let's say the, the Cold War under James Baker is that the American public are just tired now. And if they are tired and they're tired of hearing about these foreign entanglements and they think that the rest of the world doesn't thank America for it and then America gets a bloody nose. What is the point of America spending as much as the next 20 countries combined on its military? If it has this military, it calls itself the leader of the, uh, of, of the free world, but it doesn't have the stomach or the will for engagement. Here, here's the thing is, I, I, I think what we've seen since Clinton, and I think this started with Clinton, is a what I would call almost a foreign policy identity crisis. What are we? You know, we hear one side saying, you know, we're not the policemen of the world, yet we feel that uh, as a nation we get rah-rah when we start uh, looking at troops going in and seeking out, you know, the, the individual and the organization that was the mindset behind the worst attack on U.S. soil in our history. I truly believe that part of the rock and the hard spot that the American foreign policy is in right now is, for example, we talk about, you know, the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan. That being the case, they come up with a withdrawal strategy because Trump pushed it. That got everybody in America aboard. Biden team sees this. The foreign policy, the foreign policy strategy team over at State Department sees this. They put this into play. The reality is that there's an identity conflict here of, well, we want to get out, but nobody wants to truly put the mindset of getting out because does withdrawal make it look like the U.S. is losing a war again? Does this make, you know, are the images that we're seeing out of Kabul bring us back to Saigon in the 70s? There, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of confliction or deconfliction that's got to happen here in how we deal with American foreign policy going forward. We want our cake and eat it too. That's not always the easiest route to go when dealing with an ever uh, expanding global connectivity that we deal with right now. If that makes sense, uh, absolutely does. The, the U.S. is going to face. Well, just like every nation, but it maybe falls more heavily on the supposed, if not once, leader of the free world, the U.S. Health pandemics, climate change emergencies, big tech, uh, you know, great power competition. You know, we've, we've gone back to a pre-1914 world, haven't we, with competing nations of, yes, one of them is, is bigger than all the rest. But 
probably isn't the superpower anymore. Uh, we have the rise of China. Where, for you, is the most pressing of these threats that America faces in, in, in this new decade? Um, is it climate change? Is it um, the rise of China? Um, and what about this war of terror? It's been lost. Is America going to be now fighting that on domestic soil? I, I, w- I want to touch on the comment regarding the war on terror and it being lost. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that being the case. If you go back to uh, the, uh, the George W. Bush administration, when they originally went into Afghanistan, there has been over 20 years this concept that the U.S. went in there to nation build. We did not. And that was made clear even back into uh, 2001 leading into 2002 and for the past 20 years. The, the Bush administration was very clear when it said this is to stop al-Qaeda and find Osama bin Laden. We did that. Um, so in that instance, I think what it is is over the span of 20 years – we've kind of lost that mantra and lost that identity. And quite frankly, the U.S. foreign policy has kind of screwed it up a little bit by, you know, once we got bin Laden, there should have been a very definitive pivot for us to not nation build, but help Afghanistan. They're never going to be the United States. But what we can do is help them build infrastructure, bring investment. What we find is in countries where we have a permanent presence or we provide a lot of true economic development is people are employed, people become educated, we build schools, we build roads, we build, we hire locals for that. I think the thought that we lost the, the global war on terror, I think that we are still fighting the global war on terror and it's not lost. Now, back to your original question, Wayfield, is, is this. It depends on who you ask as to what the biggest challenges are. If you look at the Biden administration coming in to, uh, you know, into power, uh, the Biden administration will tell you it is absolutely China. And yet we are now, what, eight, nine months into the Biden administration and even that dynamic is changing. It is a constantly evolving. The real answer to this is I don't think we truly understand what is. Is it, in fact, a nuclearized North Korea? Well, they just launched a new rail-based uh, missile system, which has got everybody in the defense sector a little bit nervous. Uh, you look at, is it... Uh, cybersecurity, and we look at the attacks that we've seen from Russia and China and North Korea and other actors, uh, is the Middle East the biggest threat? What we're doing is we're trying to put a one-size-fits-all solution in what is quickly becoming a very dynamic foreign policy where the diplomatic team, the folks at the State Department, and even the you know, the Biden national security team and President Biden need to start being cognizant of that. If we start trying to put early 2000 solutions into place, we are truly going to get ourselves, if not into the same amount of challenges, we could see even bigger challenges by missing the forest through the trees. 
America, at least since 1945, has had this kind of messianic zeal in terms of its foreign policy. Um, it's wanted to, at least it's said, it's wanted to spread democracy and freedom to the world. What happens to that now? I guess the question I'd ask you, Ava, is define democracy and freedom. How do you look at, you know, what is democracy and freedom? You know, if you ask somebody here in the United States, what's democracy and freedom? And you go to some place like Lawrence, Kansas, they're going to be, well, America's democracy and freedom, America all the way. And then is that the same answer that we will get in your side of the pond in a place like Leeds? Uh, the, the difference is, though, the difference is, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated w w with America, because us Brits, um, we get our fingers uh, messed up in everyone's business throughout the world. But we don't have an overarching uh, banner, right? It's fundamentally geostrategic. We don't say we are doing this for reasons of apple pie and, um, you know, spreading freedom. America has a very clear notion of what freedom is. It's not necessarily shared by the, re the rest of liberal Western Europe, and it's definitely not shared by, let's say, the Communist Party of China. It's not shared by many different parts of the world, but America has an idea of what it's trying to do in the world. Um, the reason why there were boots on the ground in Afghanistan wasn't just, and I have to pu push back on you, wasn't just in retaliation for 9-11. Because as you, as you said, as soon as Osama bin Laden was, was killed, then there would have actually been a pivot and America would have got out of there. So there was a, ne a, a notion of nation building because you wanted to leave behind an infrastructure so that the Taliban could not come to power again. So, so I'll put it to you. But, but, Go on. But Roy, let me just jump in real quick on that. I, I see your point, and, and, and that is a point we hear a lot here in Washington. Where I'm coming from on that, on that point is the fact that when I say pivot, it was not just a withdrawal back then. There was a lot of, of still continuing issues regarding our national security interests in Afghanistan that need to be addressed. Did we address them the right way? No, absolutely not. We're seeing that miscue of policy today. What I do want to say is that when I talk about the pivot, the pivot should have been a lot more, and this goes back to why the, you know, I think that James Baker was a genius, is not the over-politicalization of it, but the actual true mission implementation. The strategy could have pivoted. We could have done this without all of the fireworks and hyperbole and everything that we've seen from Bush uh, to Obama, Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden. There's a lot of things we could have done. The pivot should have been using, in this case, organizations like USAID, the Agency for International Development. Great organization. Has had a successful track record in previous administrations to the Trump administration, and even in, even in the Trump administration a little bit, of truly putting good money forward to help not give charity to the Afghans, but truly 
give, you know, a, a boost up and help not nation build, but help establish a new path forward to what may have been a troubled area. In this case, we look at Afghanistan. And, and the same thing could be said in, in Yemen, in Libya. Uh, it could be said in, in, in various parts of the world where we're seeing conflict. Uh, so that's the only thing I want to say regarding that. I hope I didn't push back too much on that one. <laughs> so you're listening to this podcast. There's 5,000 of you that regularly download this every time we put out one of these shows. Why don't you sign up to Clubhouse, uh, the new social audio media uh, platform and what it means is that you can be in the audience for one of these recordings uh, so you can actually get to ask a question uh, to one of our guests uh, because your input is probably uh, somewhat better than mine. Uh, Justin we've seen this week what I think is truly um, a pivotal agreement between the US, uh, Britain and Australia. Uh, the US and uh, Britain are going to share nuclear uh, submarine technology with Australia. Very obviously, this is a way of helping to put a ring around uh, around China, a geostrategic ring around China. What does this say about American foreign policy going forward for the rest of the 2020s? Wow. I think what this does is reinforce force the particularly the Biden narrative of China is the biggest threat that faces the United States uh, in our national security interests and even our economic interests. I think that um, what this does, other than make the French really upset because they canceled those subcontracts with the French manufacturers, um, what it does do is give a added set of uh, new platforms. It gives an added new strategy to the South China Sea, which has been a problem for the better part of over a decade right now. If you look at the Aussies, the Aussies traditionally, you know, we've seen the Australian Navy contract out with you know diesel run submarines they're now going nuclear for uh, a majority of their fleet because of this deal the aussies traditionally have been in such a remote part of the world kind of into a world on themselves they really did not need the capabilities to have uh the ability to go into the south china sea for patrols i think when china got overtly aggressive in the south china sea i think when china started strong arming the aussies with uh economic influence uh particularly after the uh the failure of you know of, of tpp um i i think what this does is reinforce the mantra that Although a valued economic trading partner, this brings up the old uh, mafia ideal of keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer, or at least keep an eye on the enemies closer. This is going to reestablish. We've had an alliance down there in Australia for a while. We go back to the ANZUS, uh, the ANZUS alliance, which has been very successful. But I think that came, I, I think this needed to be done. And I think that this is going to set a new, I, I wouldn't call it like a mutually assured destruction, but I think that this is going to set a new 
kind of uh, minor saber rattling between China and our ally partners and the in our U.S. interests in in the uh, South Pacific. Uh, moving forward into the next part of this decade. In the 1970s, there was uh, CETO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, which was the U.S. Uh, with uh, with the powers kind of there. And it was another way of actually ringing less communist China, but actually uh, communist Russia. Isn't this, this just, along with the Quad, just a reimagining of that old geopolitical grouping? I think it is yet to be seen. I think that the possibility is there that this is just a a reshuffling, a reorganization, a retooling. Uh, but I think what it does is it also changes the strength dynamic. I mean, when you start looking at giving Australia the broader over the horizon reach with nuclear sub capabilities. I think that changes a little bit of the power dynamic as far as it being completely dependent on the U.S. and U.S. forces and U.S. support and kind of gives a little bit of military independence to the uh, the Australian interest, the the other interests in the South Pacific. Um, I'm, we're still looking at this very closely. Uh, I, I think that retooling is probably a good word for it, but uh, I also at the same time don't want to um, come across as maybe that might be an oversimplification. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. We saw a mission, counterterrorism in Afghanistan, getting the terrorists and stopping attacks morph into a counterinsurgency, nation building, trying to create a democratic, cohesive and united Afghanistan, something that has never been done over many centuries of Afghan history. Moving on from that mindset and those kind of large scale troop deployments will make us stronger and more effective and safer at home. Uh Last question from me, and then I'll ask Erica and AB uh, to to weigh in. And anybody else who's in the audience, please put up your hand and we'll, we'll call you on stage. What do you think America's global commitments will be in, in 2040? Obviously, they're going to be very different from what they are now. We are looking at retrenchment. Um, and the other question is, and maybe I should have done this bit first, what is the the military industrial complex uh, going to look like? Surely that military bullet, bu- budget is going to be slashed uh, in in the next twenty years. Um, and then, what exactly will American foreign policy look like twenty years hence? I know you're Nostradamus, Justin. You can do this. <laughs> I was going to say, if I had that kind of a crystal ball, I'd also pick who's going to win World Cup and uh, the Super Bowl. Let, the let, let's do years. the next 10 years. Let's do the next 10 years. That's probably a, a little bit easier. I did realize as no, soon as I said 20 years, I thought that, that's a bit harsh. Okay, no, no, no we, we, we can definitely look and, and, and try and forecast the, the trick in that question. And it... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It is a, 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 an incredible question to ask. It depends on the dynamic of the world because it, there's almost a domino effect into it. If we, if we had said in the 80s that, uh, you know, the early 80s, that we would see the downfall of the other major superpower, that being the Soviet Union, uh, we all would have said that that's just not going to happen. We're always going to be at odds with a Soviet Union. And lo and behold, we saw the Soviet Union break down after Gorbachev. Um, we saw the escalation of China. And prior to 2001, we saw China as a dynamic trading partner. And that dynamic has changed. We then thought, you know, we then built up a military under Reagan and under Bush and under Clinton and under Bush 43 even, uh, or leading up to Bush 43, where we saw a military being drawn up and uh, reinforced using traditional models going, you know, anticipating conflicts with state actors. What happened after 2001 is we start seeing non-uniform combatants and non-state actors. That changes the dynamic. We then go from a uh, carrier battle group and battalion type based military strategy to now a strategy that is uh, drones, special forces, uh, high-value digital and signal intelligence, uh, that, that's a complete almost 90-degree pivot from what we saw prior to 2001. So where are we going to see American foreign policy and military strategy going forward? Uh, it depends on what's going to happen, quite frankly, in the next 18 months. Does Afghanistan become another hub for non-state actors to start launching terror threats against national, American national security interests or NATO national security interests? That's going to be a very differential factor. How aggressive is China going to be militarily in places like the South China Sea or economically in in for example the, the african continent uh, african continent that 
there's there's a lot of variables in this which makes forecasting this very challenging. I will say the smart play is to, because of the fact that we are now in a very dynamic global economy where, again, a lot of the consumables that Americans are consuming do, in fact, come from the Pacific, you know, the Asian Pacific arena, which includes a lot of it, China. Our iPhones come from China. So we have this dynamic global economy that we want to be a part of and leading. At the same time, the people that are supplying us our consumables then become our enemy. How do we balance that? That's, 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 that's one of the biggest variables I think we're going to have to address. It kind of reminds me of there was this kind of doctrine in the late 80s, early 90s, the McDonald's uh, kind of effect or doctrine. <laughs> Did you remember it? Which was countries yes. that both have a McDonald's never go to war. And everybody went, ha-ha, what about Britain and Argentina? But Argent the Argentinian uh, first branch of McDonald's opened about two years after the Falklands War. So right. it did actually hold uh, for about... 15 to 20 years, the McDonald's doctrine. But I agree with you. The semiconductor doctrine also means that um, we will come to a, an accommodation uh, with China or oh, China will come to one with us uh, because it's not in anyone's economic interest for us not to have iPhones and Android phones. They Go on, so this brings up actually, this brings up something that, uh, Roy, Roy Field, that I, I kind of want to, you know, pat ourselves on the back here at the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs. We're actually, we have started studying and doing deep dives on the concept of what we call MADE, Mutually Assured Economic Destruction. Not unlike the Mutually Assured Destruction of the Cold War, what we are seeing is the development of a Mutually Assured Economic Destruction between the U.S. and China and the Western world and China. The idea is that if we get into a hot conflict with the Chinese, that gap in trade is going to have a deep effect on the U.S. economy. That effect on the U.S. economy is then going to ripple into the EU, into the UK, uh, into other larger global markets. And then if that happens, that directly affects the Chinese ability. Justin, I, I couldn't agree with you more, right? But it won't be a ripple. It'll be a tsunami and it'll be immediate. Yes. The way, the way that the world is yes. interconnected economically, it would uh, yeah. devastate um, all the money markets immediately. But on that note, uh, Justin, because I'm acutely aware that I've monopolized you for some 40-odd uh, minutes, and we do have Erica and AB on stage. Now, uh, this is also not going to make uh, the podcast. AB, um, Erica, and if anybody is in the audience, uh, go for it. Um, AB, over to you, sir. Thank you, Royfield. Thank you, Justin. Going with this uh, May, this mutually assured economic destruction uh, piece, I guess for me, the question I have is um, I, I do find that the United States should emphasize, and maybe they have done that as of late, but uh, the emphasis uh, in terms of the foreign policy should be uh, really with Latin America. Um, I think that the 
pandemic showed that, you know, there was great um, issues with uh, logistically with um, getting PPE equipment and then just a lot of the manufacturing being centered in China rather than, you know, throughout Latin America, I think um, just, just show that, you know, America is greatly at um, a disadvantage in that regard. Um, so what, to what degree do you think um, Americans foreign policy, if it does shift an eye or tries to do, or, or basically tries to chew gum, walk and chew gum at the same time <laughs> should be with Latin America in that you can alleviate some of the, um, mutually assured economic destruction um, effects of that, as well as maybe, because I, I do think Latin America does have some um, issues that relate, that can that can basically be directly correlated to some domestic issues as well. So do you think, do you agree with that assessment? Um, do you think Latin America makes any sense in terms of us focusing on that uh, area of the world more than, um, you know, China uh, in the Far East, or, or how, how, what type of take would you would you uh, give on that? Um, so, what I'm hearing, Ab, is is the is the idea that should the U.S. become more uh, hemispherical uh, focused than globally focused, is, is that kind of an accurate way of looking at it? Um. Uh, I'd say I mean, atmospherically in terms of, in terms of it's uh, like, the, I, I would say that get, if America focused more on the hemisphere aspect, there would be greater benefits um, domestically and globally in, in, in the event that, you know, things do get, you know, start to turn South with China. I, I do think that it's essentially a, a, it's not necessarily a focus hemispherically specifically, but I do think that the, that, that type of approach would probably help them globally as well i see what you're saying so i want to say something that's probably going to surprise everybody is the u.s is a population of instant gratification i know this is a shock to everybody but the reality is and the reason why i bring that up is because of that instant gratification we have created an economy based on just-in-time logistics that just-in-time logistics reliance has so become hyper-dependent on Chinese product consumable production and the trade of that between the U.S. and the Chinese mainland. If we did two things, number one, changed our economic models from just-in-time logistics to a more strategic logistical system, I think we could take away some of the reliance on China and possibly look at development at other logistics sources, particularly, as you pointed out, in this hemisphere. Be it, you know, we, we still have to admit the, the trade that happens here in this hemisphere just on this continent you know, our large, you know, our large, you know, one of our largest trading partners is still Canada, also Mexico. So th there is some of that. But th at the same time, can we rely on the stability of the economies and the governments inside this hemisphere when we look at places like El Salvador, Nicaragua, where we see the advent of, you know, gang dominance and corruption. Uh, there's a lot of things in play in that. Would it make sense? Yes. Is it feasible? 
not as long as we continue to be dependent on the just-in-time logistics system that creates the pipeline between China and the United States. Thank you for that. Thank you. Point well taken. Uh, thank you for that question, A.B. Um, Erica, you've been dutifully uh, sat, sat on stage. Uh, do you have a, a question uh, for Justin Russell? Um, I'm so glad that A.B. brought up the Latin America uh, component um, because that's obviously a, a special interest of mine. But I'm going to pivot to what you said, and it just seems that the U.S. keeps making the same mistakes. Um, going back to what you said, um, uh, the instant gratification, but I take it further and almost reactionary, going back to um, the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan and even in foreign policy, where it seems like warfare state is embedded in foreign policy. My question to you is, uh, well, we think it nation building, obviously, and we're very self-centered and not other-centered, as was proven time and time again in Afghanistan. Um, Obama withdrew troops, sent in drones. Uh, we withdrew troops, left allies, left translators. So my question is, how do we recover? More importantly, how do we change long-term? One, reestablish U.S. credibility, because I do feel that it's taken a hit in order to be taken seriously by allies and the countries that we need to be aligned with. And how do we reestablish the credibility and recover those people that we left in the lurch? And it wasn't the first time. Great questions, tough questions. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is an amazing set to uh, unpack there. Let me start with the last part, as far as how do we get the people out. That is gonna be, continue to be a challenge. What we saw was, a series of just grave, and, and I've said this publicly, what we're seeing today in Afghanistan and the fall of the Afghan government into the hands of the Taliban, what we've seen over the past uh, 15 to 20 days, has been a just epic failure in U.S. foreign policy, U.S. strategy, U.S. intelligence. That is something I don't like saying, but that is the reality. This is something that goes back to the Trump administration when the Secretary, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo goes into a ballroom in Doha, Qatar, and starts making a deal with the Taliban about us withdrawing and then setting that date. Number one, anybody. Anybody, and I, I know high school students that have told me how that was wrong, anybody would realize that you don't do a deal with the Taliban about the future of Afghanistan without having the current representatives of the current central government in Afghanistan, the ones you're supposedly trying to protect, not even in country, let alone in the room. You have that. You have the... The, the failure of the Biden administration, we knew we were withdrawing starting April 2nd. So we had until April 2nd until August 31st to at least start a plan, implement a plan to get those special interest visa outs, those high, those 
high value uh, government assets out. Uh, we missed we missed the train on that. Uh, the Biden administration has fault in the fact that they should have been planning from this from day one in the office. They knew this was coming. I don't see how the talking points of Secretary Brinken the other day of saying we inherited a date, we didn't inherit a plan. Well, as a leader, I would hope that a Secretary of State, if you didn't inherit a plan, you should have drawn up a plan. So I think as a result of all of that, we've now lost credibility, not only with our allies, but in future larger state actor engaged type conflicts, if we have an expectation that we want people in country to assist us in the fight, we're, we've lost a lot of credibility. A lot of people are going to think twice of, eh, maybe I won't help out the Americans. I'm going to sit this one out. That gives discomfort. That gives a, uh, a hesitation from our normal allies in these fights to say, yeah, we're going to go all in. I don't think we're going to have that opportunity here in the next few years. What, now, what we do have to do, can we fix this? Yes. Can we fix this in its current state? I'm not sure, but we are going to have to look very tactically at the as-is situation, but particularly be strategic and look at, and I know I, I, this is kind of a soapbox for me right now, the, the soft power mentality of the James Baker State Department, we don't have a choice because for the mistakes that we made, we're not only telegraphing our weaknesses to our adversaries, but we're also creating distrust among those that should trust us the most. Thank you. And I think that's a very important aspect. Thank you, Erica. Uh, Daniel, uh, you've decided to join us on stage. Uh, why don't you ask your question, sir? Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Justin, thank you for being here. Very two important questions. I understand that you have had throughout the years very much experience in terms of the naval and maritime uh, industry, not only within your experience in general and dynamics, among others. So uh, born and raised in Puerto Rico, I have a very important question that... Uh, obviously it doesn't make it rounds uh, too much and it's concerning the Jones Act and more importantly the fact that the current naval uh, merchant uh, technology that we have uh, based on the Jones Act for the people I don't know everything that goes into Puerto Rico must be in the U.S. shipped uh, not only worked by U.S. citizens or permanent residents from the country in itself and it doesn't allow us to get international shipping in between right uh, without any type of uh, taxation, among other things that they don't need to deal with. So my question to you is, based on that, is the U.S. at the moment increasing their technologies and more importantly, updating their merchant ships in itself? And number two, is there a plan to, at the moment, fortify within what uh, the gentleman before was asking? I think we made a reference in terms of a hemispheric, right, within Latin America and our clothes, which has been running in decay for a very long time. Happening right now, what's happening in Cuba and obviously the situation in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, which is very unstable in itself. And these are things, obviously, that are very close to us. Is there an aggressive point on those two fronts? Thank you. So, Daniel, uh, full transparency. Um, 
I am I am shocked that you brought up the Jones Act. That is not a topic that I have heard a lot about in the past five, six years. I appreciate that. Uh, again, also full transparency, I was an advocate for the Jones Act uh, when I was part of the maritime community. Uh, so I kind of have a little bit of a kind of leaning towards Jones Act. I think that a strong U.S. flagged merchant marine is a key component to a strong national security footprint. Without that, with a too big reliance on international flag, questionable flag state shipping, it's going to be a challenge for us both economically and from a defense posture. So let me just get that. And also, I should also say that as a former member of the United States Coast Guard who inspected both U.S. Jones Act flagships and foreign flagships, I appreciate, you know, particularly the situation in Puerto Rico. Do do I think Jones Act is going away? I don't think so. I think, should we revisit it? Um, I think we should. I think that, look, Puerto Rico is going to be a unique, as is all of our territories, whether it's Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, are always going to have as as uh, a, a commonwealth or as a territory, uh, that's always going to be a challenge, particularly with Puerto Rico, which Puerto Rico, if you look at some of the ideas of a blue water highway, which largely requires Jones Act flag shipping in and out of Puerto Rico, creating a blue water highway between uh, the continental United States and our uh, Caribbean and even some of our European trading partners. I think that Jones Act is is critical, but I think we need to relook at it from a modernization standpoint. Are we putting the money into increasing technology in how we're modernizing our uh, U.S. flag merchant fleet? Absolutely not. We don't care about a strong U.S. merchant marine fleet. And that is a tragedy. I think what we need to do is bring back uh, the federal government's Title 11 loan guarantee programs, which guaranteed, uh, you know, American flag ships being built under Jones Act and employing Jones Act crews, strengthening it that way. Other countries subsidize the same way. Why can't we? Why did we do away or stop putting focus on that program? We're not, we're still using old fleets. I mean, the Coast Guard has a just now getting modernized. We still have some of the oldest fleets in the Coast Guard in the in in the world and that if that's not getting modernized there's really no thought process into modernizing a u.s flag merchant fleet which again goes back to the idea that we're going to have to rely a lot on u.s or i'm sorry foreign flag state carriers to do commerce with the united states and that is also part of the issue with the just-in-time logistics is you get a you get a, uh, uh, a a foreign flag state uh, shipper that can go nonstop Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, straight into L.A., Seattle, San Francisco, here on the East Coast, Rotterdam, 
you know, Southampton, straight into New York, Miami, Tampa. All of that needs to be revisited, but it has to be done in a way that makes American merchant marine strong and puts a little bit more emphasis on the changing economic environment. I, I, I hope I answered your question. You did, you did, and I appreciate it. To, to finalize a small comment in itself, right, I think that that's the most important thing that needs to be revisited. The benefits that it is on updating the situation, but more importantly, being able to do uh, these transactions uh, to a certain extent, at least within the territories at a lower cost. Something needs to happen in the restructuring of the way of the compensation that there is, but more importantly, the expenses that it takes to take this product down there, because it's completely irrational that you are paying such a higher uh, markup within the same uh, system. Well, you, you're not necessarily dealing with international, right? So it's it's unfortunately a, a situation that needs to be revisited a little bit sooner than later because everything is just going downhill fairly quickly on that department. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you, Daniel, for, for an excellent question and thank you for taking us into the weeds with uh, Puerto Rico uh, policy. <laughs> it um, uh, relates uh, to to uh, the wider United States. Adrian, looks like you could well be uh, the last person to ask a question, sir. So make sure it's a good one. Okay, um, I just wanted to know what do you about the future of um, the U.S. like involvement in the Levant? Like now, you know, today I saw you saw an example of like sanctions being um, circumvented. Right. Let's say in like uh, in Lebanon, you had Iranian fuel that uh, made it the way Syria, they, they brought it across. It's like, what's the future of uh, like sanctions and all these different type of proxy stuff going on in like so, the, the Syria, Lebanon, Israel area? Let me kind of take it up to a 35,000 foot level. This is something that uh, the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs, uh, our center has been working very diligently on looking into that. Um, there's a couple of things. Number one, the we're seeing the bypassing of sanctions through actors that we would consider allied to our national security interests, which is not necessarily the case. I give you the Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, the Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates, the Emiratis, who are supposed to be our true allies in the Gulf, uh, they're supposed to be our really good buddies, they continue to bypass both UN and UN, UN and U.S. sanctions by basically laundering money. And we wrote this up in a report that we published back in 2020. 20, I believe it was, where we, through our investigation, found out that the, that the U.S. government was, in fact, investigating the UAE Central Bank for money laundering for the purposes of bypassing these sanctions and allowing uh, money and business and commerce to flow through Iran around the sanctions. What has to happen is we have to look internally as to who are truly our friends. Our, we do not believe that the Saudis nor the Emiratis 
are true allies of our large scale, both economic, foreign policy and national security interests, not just in the region, but in the globe. The um, if you look at the Emiratis, for example, the Emiratis have been taking arms sold to them by the U.S. in foreign military sales and putting them into the hands of bad actors in places like Libya. We saw it with General Haftar. He's been using American supplied arms to attack uh to attack innocent civilians and infrastructure, which is in fact a violation of the Arms Export Control Act. Uh, We've seen the UAE use drone strikes, and the Saudis use American drones in places like Yemen, and that is a violation of the Arms Export Control Act because the Arms Export Control Act is very clear when it says you cannot have, we cannot sell you arms that we use to attack civilian populations and civilian infrastructure, point blank. We, the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs, back in December of 2020, filed a lawsuit against the, uh, against the uh, State Department and the U.S. government in U.S. federal court to block the sale of 30, or 20. $23 billion worth of arms, including F-35s, to the Emiratis for the reasons that were clearly laid out in an inspector general report earlier in 2020. My, my concern is, why is it that you know a small think tank like ours has to go to involving the third co-equal branch of government and pointing out the fallacy that we're putting a lot of faith into people that don't necessarily reciprocate that kind of love. And until we realize that, we're going to continue to see the situations in Yemen and Libya escalate. We're going to continue to see uh, the, uh, the turmoil and the escalation in places like Lebanon. We're going to continue, as long as we keep doing these deals with actors such as the Saudis and the Emiratis, we're going to continue to see an escalation and possibly creating a arms race in a part of the world that doesn't need more arms, let alone a mega arms race involving highly technical arms. So we've got a lot of soul searching we've got to do internally before we can start even thinking about resolving the problems that we're seeing in in, in like the the situation that you're referring to. Thank you for Justin Russell from the New York Center for American Foreign Affairs for explaining America's position as it retrenches from the globe. Don't forget you can join us by quite simply going on to midatlanticshow.com and you can listen to all of the back episodes. And whilst you're there, why don't you also write us a review? Go on to Apple iTunes and tell us what you think of the show. Uh, we do record these shows on Clubhouse, so quite simply go on to Clubhouse, uh, follow the Club Mid-Atlantic, and you can be here for a live recording. Don't forget, folks, left of center politics is right thing in politics. Look after yourselves and look after your loved ones even better. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.